Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host for this week, TJ Hafer. In my party today, our video game critic, Cameron Kunzelman. Uh, hello. And 3MA veteran, Games Beats, Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And today we're talking about uh, specifically, somewhat specifically, Pillars of Eternity 2, but also more in general, the Infinity Engine family genre of uh of rpgs uh not not our normal thing it's it's uh are they strategy games why are we talking about this at all uh rowan why are we talking about the infinity engine games on 3ma got a short answer and a long answer and the short answer is fairly simply that tactics games and rpgs are often dealing with the same sorts of questions your you know XCOMs and your darkest dungeons are you know, running parallel with your fallouts and your shadow runs and your infinity engine games. Um, so looking at the two of those makes a certain level of sense. The longer sort of version going into the history of specifically the infinity engine is that these were games that were designed to be the ultimate RPGs. These were the, the RPG Messiah um, and that included that they're both for role-playing as in rollers and dice and role-playing as in rollers and character. So they were supposed to be good for people who both cared a lot about combat and didn't care at all about combat. And this is partially because of the RPG collapse of the mid-90s, which we talked a little bit about in our 93 and 97 shows, I think, um, where basically the new technology and business shifts in the 90s made rpgs just die like the the series that had dominated before 1994 uh, just kind of stopped running and then in their place new series rose up and the one that people were most invested in at the time was Baldur's gate because it was the return of ad and um before the collapse and before the license changes, which was part of the collapse. I'm not sure exactly how the, what the business decision behind SSI losing license was. But SSI had dominated AD&D games for 10 years or so before uh, they lost the license. And their main form of that were these games called the Gold Box Games. The Gold Box Games were relatively simple, straightforward, tile-based movement games with intricate tactical combat well not intricate by our standards we're not talking XCOM, but intricate by the standards of the days where you are you and your party of six people are constantly fighting you know five to twenty enemies and uh it was really neat you're moving them around you're making tactical decisions you're trying to make sure that you know you can be the thief in a backstabbing spot and your fighters at a point where enemies can't get around them but they were also really, really repetitive. This combat was slow. It's 20 minutes. It's randomized combat, so you get it all the time. You're, so you're doing these things constantly. And that was, you know, made these games a slog by today's standards. So the combination of trying to figure out how to make uh, RPG tactical combat, especially AD&D style, better with the idea that Baldur's Gate and its successors would be all all RPGs for all people led to what became the Infinity Engine and the style of combat that is uh, a sort of real-time with lots of pausing, uh, highly intricate rule-based combat that I think when we examine it will uh, take us to 
answering the question of why why is the current tactical renaissance uh almost entirely turn-based why are we not getting real-time tactics games and it's because the difficulties that these games have faced uh kind of reveal uh the issues of trying to do complex tactics and with real-time environment so where where do you get where do you think the the boundary lies like where where exactly i mean we've We've talked about Final Fantasy Tactics being, you know, something that would fall under the tactics and strategy wheelhouse. Now we're talking about, you know, Baldur's Gate. Like, is there a point at which strategy games and or tactics games, I suppose, can just encompass most RPGs? Or is there something specific about these styles of RPGs that makes them fall into that, you know, category? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think something that's interesting is to look at border cases, right? So I think of like uh, Suikoden and Suikoden 2 in particular, um, right there in the middle of the 90s. Uh, Tactics Ogre, games like that, right? That are mm-hmm. not, I mean, right, they have a fairly robust go around and talk to people and do quests and that kind of stuff, but they also have a tactical battle layer and and those two games are very different in how they treat that but but those are both represented and then like you know Suikoden 1 and 2 have a kind of strategy layer where you're recruiting people and putting them not just like in tactical you know small party combat but you're putting them in wars you know there are these kind of big I I love the way that they're abstracted uh, especially in Suikoden 1 but you know it's these big groups of of uh badly pixelated uh troops that like smash into each other and you see all these numbers kind of going up and down so i mean i think there's a healthy not in the pc space necessarily uh or at least i'm not as familiar in the pc space but there is a moment in the mid 90s where there are border checks that are proliferating that are trying to address the kind of weird split that you're talking about and i think by the time we get to Baldur's gate uh, that that has uh, solidified into a particular kind of genre. So, like, you know, I don't think it starts with Baldur's Gate. I think, you know, that, that Fallout and Fallout 2 certainly have something to do with that, that they are trying to approximate, um, I don't know, all of the different scales that, that battle could happen at. But that's fully turn-based. That isn't real-time with pause. That's none of the weird stuff that we've been talking about so far. So, um it's just a cluster of things that are all in the same time period. Uh, one clarification is when I talk about the RPG collapse, I mean Western or PC RPGs. JRPGs are doing fine in 95 and 96. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. They're doing, they're doing amazingly well, actually. Uh, it's the, the particular PC quirks. Um, right. So, so we've had, we, we had these, these kind of... Uh, you know, the, these er RPGs for a little while, and then they sort of disappeared themselves to some degree. And we've, we've kind of had a, a resurgence of them recently with, you know, specifically what, what Obsidian's done with, um, you know, Pillars 1, Pillars 2, and Tyranny. I'm curious, did you guys feel like, um, I guess what, what I would be asking is what, why do you feel like they went away for a while and we're kind of uh, replaced by, you know, we had stuff like Mass Effect that's more, much more of a shooter, much more in line with the kinds of 
bigger budget non-RPG games that were out at the time, and then what caused them to have such a resurgence recently? Well, the the key switch is that the Xbox came out, basically, and Western developers, who were usually the ones making these PC RPGs, though not exclusively, uh, saw that there was plenty of money in making games that could be played both on PC and console. And the, the key game there is Knights of the Old Republic. BioWare makes mm-hmm. a game that is, you know, specifically for the Xbox initially um, and eventually comes to PC. But it's like, here is, here is you know, the, the top tier of uh, your Western RPG developers saying we want to make the cinematic RPGs, which are very, very playable for people on console. One of the interesting things about the Infinity Engine style of game is that um, it's sort of this dominant idea of what the RPG should be. Uh, when Pillars got announced as the the Kickstarter thing, like it obviously had to be this sort of thing because this is exactly what the RPGs are. So, you know, this is the third RPG Messiah after Baldur's Gate and Dragon Age Origins. Um, this is the game that's going to bring back the true RPG, so obviously it has to have Infinity Engine-style combat. But there are only actually a few games that have this. Um, you have the the five Infinity Engine itself games, which are the two Baldur's Gates, Planescape Torment, and the two Icewind Dales, or Icewind's Dale. Uh, <laughs> then you have this, this lull you're talking about, uh, where the cinematic RPG takes over and Dragon Age Origins becomes the game that is, again, the Messiah game where it's supposed to be both the cinematic RPG that's going to appeal to all the people uh, who you know want lots and lots of cutscenes and talking and cool stuff happening and gory battles and so on, but also the intricate tactical real-time with pause combat. Um, and then the Dragon Age sequels sort of go towards in a way different aspects of this in interesting ways but also sometimes bad ways and then it sort of falls falls away again and now you have the the three obsidian games you mentioned plus there's an upcoming pathfinder game that is using this kind of combat and that's about it well that's right yeah i forgot about the pathfinder um because that was kickstarted too wasn't it yeah yeah Um, I haven't heard about it in a while, but I've checked the Kickstarter. They're still posting updates, so it seems to be plugging along. Uh, but yeah, it's it. So we've got like there are roughly ten games that you can say have the Infinity Engine or Infinity Engine style combat, and they're made largely by two companies, which are Black Isle, which in many ways became Obsidian, and yeah. um, Bioware. Right. Um, and then you have all these edge cases, like Cameron was talking about, where you see companies trying to solve these issues of how to do intricate real-time tactics, how to have lots of combat but make it not take forever. Um, and Dragon Age, all three Dragon Ages are trying to answer this question. Um, uh, Final Fantasy is really interested in trying to answer this question with uh, 12 and the various 13s, and I think it fails miserably with those. But <laughs> it's it's working on this idea of um, you know, sort of semi-automated, but also super intricate combat. We, you kind of the the question that you asked too was partially like, why did they disappear? Um, and and I I completely agree with Rowan that there's this kind of moment of moving toward the cinematic, um, or moving toward, you know, more traditional, uh, safer. I think safer aesthetics, um, especially safer aesthetics within the the realm of 3D. But also, they were just very expensive to make. Um, with 
with the move into the kind of Xbox friendly or like the the 3D realm, and and we're weirdly kind of skipping over Neverwinter Nights here, right? Which is a, a kind of right. key middle text, uh, just got an enhanced edition. People can go check that out, but similar scenario. Um, but I think what happens is when we, I mean, not I think what happens, Baldur's Gate 2 was incredibly expensive to make, um, so expensive to make uh, that along with, you know, other... Uh, industrial pressures that were happening that what was meant to be the third game then eventually gets spun off into the expansion pack throne of ball and then the again planned third game the black hound is never made and that's you know kind of the this infinite uh internet rumor slash design document that floats around uh that people have been piecing together since then quite literally right but uh with 3D, I think that you, it buys you a lot of different things. It buys you not only a uh, ability to, to jettison into like a, a different set of combat or a different way of doing things, but it also buys you the ability to reuse assets in a pretty interesting and, uh, well, maybe less interesting for the player, but uh, from a game design perspective, I think more interesting way. You can generate more content more quickly as opposed to the massive expenditure as, uh, monetarily as well as in time in the Baldur's Gate games is all the painted background. There's a massive, massive number of painted screens, so much that when you listen to Josh, Josh Sawyer, oh, I'll get it out uh, eventually, but when you listen to him talk about Pillars of Eternity 1 and 2, you can read in uh, Jason Schreier's uh, Blood, Sweat, and Pixels, there's a really great pull quote that I like to, to teach out of that book, where it's Sawyer talking about how one of the the over promises that got made with pillars of eternity one when they kickstarted it was the number of screens that they were going to have simply because those are still now even you know i mean they have to be a much higher resolution now but the planning that is required and the lack of reuse of assets in those things is a time and money hole and you can do it and so 3d liberates you from that in certain, in certain ways you get modular design things like that um, so I think that's another reason they disappear, uh, just for monetary reasons. Yeah, th this is also one of the reasons that the RPGs collapse in the mid-90s, is that your Ultimas and your Might, Might and Magics just are, these games were coming out like once every other year, and they'd have expansion packs that came out, so you'd have like something every year, and the gold box games were coming out like three per year, um, and then all of a sudden all that stuff gets infinitely more expensive because of CD-ROMs and the amount of time that it takes to create this stuff. Um, and this is why, you know, there are relatively few of these Infinity Engine games compared to what came before. Uh, so the, this story of the RPG in terms of, like, going in the direction Cameron's talking about of being able to reuse assets, and when we talk about Dragon Age, that becomes a hugely important thing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I think there's there's a little bit of a perception almost, at least a perception I've had in the past that, you know, the reason these Kickstarter RPGs go the way they do art-wise is that they ne don't necessarily have the budget to do a full 3D world the way that, like, Mass Effect or Dragon Age has, but it, it sounds like almost it, it might be less labor-intensive in some ways to create, you know, a... a 3D world. I mean, if you if you really look at Knights of the Old Republic, they they do reuse a lot of you know textures and assets in that. And I never really thought about the fact that oh yeah, if every area in your game is basically a matte painting with some dynamic lighting applied to it, then that's that's actually going to be pretty time intensive art budget wise. 
it, it's probably more of an issue of scale where when you have like the um, people who can create all the models for you and then you can reuse those, that creates a different kind of situation than just straight up having to paint the things. So um, it, it probably depends on the size of the studio and like the sorts of people that they have. Uh, do they have, you know, artists who are uh, putting these things together? Do they have the um, animators, you know, what, how they can build up that way. But yes, that's, this is a key part of the story. Right. Well, now that we've got the historical perspective, uh, I think we should kind of dig into the mechanical nitty gritty of, you know, the, the, uh, the core of these tactical RPGs. Um, and I'll start with a question that I know Rowan and I have kind of a similar answer to, but this party based, um, very kind of positioning focused, um, you know, spell spell radiuses and stuff and, and real-time pause combat in these Infinity Engine games. Is it actually any good? <laughs> <laughs> My answer has always been no. Uh, I As has mine. <laughs> strongly preferred the Fallouts and so on to the Infinity Engine games. I eventually, like 10 years later, came to a grudging respect for Baldur's Gate. And, I, you know, I always like Planescape Torments text and uh, exploration aspect but uh yeah the, this has been something that i have been grumpy about for a very long time um and it's still happening like i um after i finished pillars one someone asked me like so how did you find it and i was like well i thought the main story starts to drag at the end and i always hated the combat so eight out of ten <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah no but, uh, i i had a very similar experience but the the thing that the engine beyond just the combat is really good for the sort of isometric camera, the um, big party movement, the the Warcraft style uh, um, mouse clicking, you know, left click to select, right click to move. Um, this is really good for exploration. If you just find a nice little forest in Baldur's Gate and wander around it, like it's really effective. That's the thing that I think makes this work as an RPG. Um, it's also fast. It does the thing I talked about where, especially if you're playing at lower difficulty settings, like the you can get in a lot of combat, but the combat ends in like 10 seconds or two minutes or something like that. This, we're not talking the gold box 20 minute, uh, 20 minute battles. Uh, so like it's, it's effective at kind of moving you through the world. Uh, and that's really good. It's less effective for me in terms of uh, actually having fun fighting things. And, you know, listeners of the show will know that I'm a big fan of tactics games. Uh, I love your XCOMs and your Darkest Dungeons and your Battle Bros and all those things. Uh, but these ones do not stick with me for a variety of reasons that I can get into or will get into further. But I want to hear what Cameron has to say. I think it's, uh, I, I think, I mean, I, I, in my review for Waypoint, I reviewed Pillars of Eternity 2, and I think maybe this is why why I'm here, <laughs> is that, uh, so yeah, I, I, I think that the biggest problem with Pillars of Eternity 2, and, and uh, I've played less of Pillars of Eternity 1, so, so I don't have as strong of an opinion about it, but the problem is that they have stuck to a combat model that hasn't changed very much uh, from Baldur's Gate. And uh, weirdly enough, I think that the ways the ways that they have changed have even been bad uh, to some degree. I, I think that there are, I mean, we'll talk about the nitty gritty later, but there are things that I really appreciate more about Baldur's Gate than I do about Pillars of Eternity. I, uh, 
so so over the past couple of years, I've played all the Baldur's Gate games. Uh, so Baldur's Gate One, Siege of Dragonspear, the Beam Dog produced uh, Middle Middle Quill, um, and then Baldur's Gate Two, and then Throne of Ball, and now I'm in the middle of Planescape Torment. And um, my, my friend Danny and I, uh, we play a few hours of the game, and then we record an hour podcast episode where we just break it down and talk about everything that happens and mostly that is story but i've been talking and thinking about the combat in the Baldur's gate series uh bi-weekly now for like two years um and so so you know i i, I think i have a lot of ambivalence about it uh in a lot of ways so i think rowan is right about every single part of it like it is uh clunky in the wrong places it's fast in some ways which is really great but you're sacrificing a lot of like tactical fidelity or engagement um one would think that if a game had a lot of combat in it in the way that Baldur's Gate does that that combat might need to mean something and i think for a lot of people and including me as i got further and further down the Baldur's Gate path it meant less and less one of the reasons for that i think or, or uh, one of the con- part of the context around that for me is that I think that the Baldur's Gate combat system works exceptionally well for the level set, the Dungeons and Dragons level range of the first Baldur's Gate game, which is like levels one to eleven, maybe with Tales of the Sword Coast. Uh, it might not even go that high, but we'll say like one to eight on average. I think that for the kind of slower. Um, more hit friendly in the sense that you're hitting enemies fairly often enemies are hitting you fairly often i think it works i think it works i think it is i I think it's good uh i think there is something interesting and fun about that level range consequently uh, you know to the completely to the side of this i think that is where dungeons and dragons itself as an rpg system really works well is that sub 10 uh level but I, i say all that because i think that the combat is fairly fast. It's fairly rewarding. Uh, there are moments where where you are getting hit quite a bit, and you don't know if you're going to get out. There's not really optimal. There's not really optimal play at those levels uh, unless you're power gaming in a very particular way because of the randomness of the dice roll that's happening. Um, it's very non-deterministic feeling, um, and so I think that gives it some kind of edge to it uh Baldur's Gate 1 2 had and and in the enhanced edition still has pretty good AI I think that Baldur's Gate 1 and Baldur's Gate 2's AI is actually better than Pillars of Eternity um I did not find myself struggling with that AI and trying to get it to do what I want it to do nearly as much as I did with Pillars of Eternity but Pillars of Eternity also has a much more robust scripting system for you to to kind of get in the the guts of the machine and do that yourself so so maybe i just didn't play with yeah. that side enough you never did that with the the first Baldur's gate uh yeah you can do it Baldur's gate one Baldur's gate two but i never felt that was necessary um okay. i felt like i could micromanage because you're the action economy is fairly finite right like you're not getting that many hits per turn uh you don't have that many spells you can do there's not i i don't even think you have access to contingency in the first Baldur's gate or if you do it's a like a minor spell contingency and by that i mean it's like a spell trigger something happens to you there's an if then clause and then if i get hit below half health i then i shoot a fireball or something um when you get to Baldur's gate 2 that's half of the game is this like very intricate uh micromanagement of people and objects and spells and all these different things and um um, by the time that I actually got to that point of Baldur's Gate 2's expansion, Throne of Ball, um, I was completely over, like utterly over it. But I think it has to do with that level range thing I was talking about. There, there's something about that sub-10 um, skin-of-your-teeth combat 
where the spells are very finite. There's only so many different things you can do um, that I find really engaging. So that is the longest <laughs> possible yeah. answer. Two, I think that Baldur's Gate 1 is really good, and I think that the mistake has been to not figure out how to break that. And, and I don't mean break in like a ho-ho power gamey way, but just break it into something different in Baldur's Gate 2, Pillars of Eternity, all those games. Um, one of the interesting things that you reminded me of there was that Pillars of Eternity, when it got released, didn't have AI. You were supposed to do everything yourself. Oh. The AI got added in patches a couple months later because think, people were I like... I think it had like very rudimentary... Yeah, like very basic kind of settings that you could do, but yeah, it was not very good at all. Yeah, so so this is there's there's probably a good reason that the AI was not as good in Pillars of Eternity, which is that they thought that their audience didn't want it, um, and that that is clearly something that they realized the audience did want. Uh, when you mentioned that the uh, the combat didn't have meaning, this reminded me of. Uh, a GDC talk that I w went to with one of the Mass Effect 2 and 3 level designers where he talked about how to like get emotion in your level design, which is a really odd thing to think about at first, but then he talked about how uh, they would do things like try to build up your confidence early on when the story is saying, you know, all right, we've got this plan, let's do this by just throwing a bunch of trash enemies at you. And then as the they would progress and they would get to the points where, you know, the plan is falling apart, everything's going wrong. Now the enemies all, you know, they're tougher. They're the ones who last longer. Your, your fights are become slogs. And this stuck with me as a really interesting idea of how to develop your RPGs or just your shooters. Like, both of those those things work. And when I think of the Baldur's Gate games and, and these these other games, I think about when the combat becomes more meaningful... Um, in, in a story sense, it becomes more annoying. It, when it's harder, like then mm -hmm. you are, then it becomes. It takes three times as long because you're trying to like find exactly the right things. You're trying to use these consumables that you've never used before. Uh, it it becomes frustrating when it's harder in a way that it shouldn't be. I'm a person who likes to play games at at the hardest level that I possibly can. Um, and with, with Dragon Age and Mass Effect, that tends to be the highest level. Uh, but with these games, I'm just like, no, I don't want to deal with this uh, because it, it gets rid of the fast aspect of it that I think has been... Uh, it's one of the main appeals. Uh, so, yeah, they, as, I, as I was finishing Pillars 1, like it increasingly became about, okay, how can I best do this without exerting any form of effort? And that's not yeah. a good thing you want in an RPG. Yeah, no, it, the, like my least favorite parts of Pillars 1 were like the really tough kind of tucked away boss fights, not even the, the main story ones, but the ones that were kind of optional that you could go do if you wanted like a really challenging experience. And and yeah, it, it, it gets to the point where there's there's all these characters like i think like if you brought someone who had a pet in pillars one you could have like up to seven characters and they all have like these super detailed ability lists that it's like there's an option in the menus which always makes me laugh that's like auto pause every two seconds to kind of give you a little bit of a chance to catch up and it's like 
why not just make it turn-based? Like, if, if you're giving us an option to pause every two seconds, why not turn those units of two seconds of combat into a turn so I can actually look at what all of my characters have available by characters who I've, like, leveled up and, and like, geared out through this super detailed gear and stats system, and they have, like, magic swords that give them extra abilities, and it's... Like, it's, it's really way too much to pay attention to, and that's always been my biggest kind of bugbear with this combat system, is is it really is. Like, I the reason I love Dragon Age Origins so much is because it's four characters, uh, and I would always have two frontline guys, uh, a damage dealer and a healer, and I'd script three of them to do exactly what I wanted and then basically play it as a single-player game. Uh, like Rowan, you were talking uh, earlier about how like a lot of a lot of fights and pillars are like send your guys in and and you know watch the battle happen and hope they win and that's kind of why I felt like Origins was a sweet spot is I could be like okay I'm gonna really micromanage my one character that I've I've designed to be like this very specific type of tool and then my other three party members I'm just gonna help hope that they do what I've scripted them to do and do it intelligently. And that's, that's why I felt like I had a good time with the combat in that. Um, that's why I love dragon age too. But, uh, before we go down that rabbit hole, um, this is, uh, if you asked me which of these infinity engine style games was my favorite, I would say tyranny and tyranny is a mess in a lot of ways, but tyranny only has four characters in your party. Yeah. And, the four characters have these very specific, super badass moves that when you need to do something, you know, okay, here's the thing that I need to do that I really want to do right now. Uh, there's a whole lot of choice fatigue in especially Pillars of Eternity uh, because there are so many characters with so many skills uh, and Tyranny only having four characters and Dragon Age only having four or three characters uh, makes that a lot easier to deal with. Uh, but some of this goes back to... Uh, how the RPGs changed when Baldur's Gate was coming out. Because the, the basic unit of, or basic structure of an RPG uh, before the collapse was you roll a party of four to six characters, and each one of those party members is created, and that's the, your unit. Like, uh, that is who you are. You are that party. You are not one member of that party. You are every member of that party. And the complexity comes from the complexity of what those party members are supposed to do. Uh, in an AD&D game, your fighters don't do anything except hit people. Uh, your mages and your clerics, they all have a bunch of spells that they can use, but your fighters don't do anything. And one of the things that happens after uh, the collapse and rebirth of RPGs is that it switches from a party-centered idea to a single character idea. And Baldur's Gate was initially designed to be a tabletop translation. Right. It was supposed to be, this is the game that is just like getting with your buddies and playing D&D. Um, there was a DM role in the multiplayer. Uh, you were supposed to play it with other people. And this is one of the big ironies that I like to cite about RPGs, is that these created characters um, that are like the whole point of role-playing games these days, your garrisons and... Uh, 
your Alistairs and Morrigan and all these characters that these are the reasons that people love RPGs. Baldur's Gate did that accidentally. They were like, okay, what if people are doing the single player? We don't really want them to, but they should have characters who are kind of like playing with real people. So they added Minsk and Jahara and all these characters that people realized, holy shit, these are great. We love them. Um, but one of the things that comes up in this era and is especially pushed by Fallout more than uh, Baldur's Gate uh, is the idea that you are playing this individual character. All your choices are developing that character, and it's how the world deals with that. And then when games like Diablo 2 come around, uh, they realize, okay, like, if you're playing a Diablo 1... Your wizard has spells, but your fighter doesn't. So the wizard is like 10 times more complex. What if we made the fighters equally complex? So now you have fighters with skills. They'll knock down your opponents. They have the equivalent of spells. Barbarians in Pillars of Eternity have you know, their rage, and they spend that rage like a wizard uses mana. Um, they're all roughly equivalent. And then, so when you get pillars and these throwback RPGs coming back, they're going back to a time where it was sort of the party, but the party was not equally complex. And now they're saying, okay, everything is equally complex. Um, And pillars one especially is difficult with this because not only do you have these skills, but it decides to make all of the items in the game equally complex. Like an AD&D game, you get a longsword, and then you get a longsword plus one, the longsword plus one is better. <laughs> uh, in Pillars of Eternity, you have a hatchet and a saber, or you have a battle axe, or you have a pike, or you have a sword and shield. And all of these things are equally useful in different situations. So there's this extra layer of complexity where you want the characters who have the high penetration, the big two-handed weapons going against up against the enemies with armor. Do you want the characters who are wielding two fast things going up against enemy mages and stuff? So there's this extra layer beyond e- two extra layers where all these characters are equal complex and their items are significantly more complex than you would have in the previous AD&D games. So that can make pillars a little overwhelming. Yeah, and and I, this is not something that's happening just in the the computer RPG space either, right? Like. Yes. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons 3.0 and 3.5 make this iteration in the early 2000s, and then we get fourth edition, which is it was hotly critiqued. Um, although I found it quite fun to play, but people hated it because for this exact reason you're pointing out that right because wizards are by their very nature from the very heart of Dungeons and Dragons in the early 1970s, they are just cooler than fighters. <laughs> like, like that is the you know mm-hmm. it's the. Uh, the way that that universe is set up and it's because it's a throwback to Conan and, and to uh, Vancey, Jack Vance's work and all this different stuff. Like if you spend the time and effort to learn how to do magic, you're just a cooler person than someone who swings a sword. Um, but that doesn't make for necessarily engaging gameplay. Um, and, you know, so the, the big joke about Dungeons and Dragons 3.5 is that if you're a level 20 fighter, it is always in your best interest to grapple someone and then wrestle them. <laughs> on the ground whereas if you were a wizard you should just uh disintegrate them right um with a ray from your finger uh, a ray a, a ray of death 
as it were. Um, and so, like, you know, fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons comes in and says, well, actually, look, everyone gets a certain number of daily actions. And there's a robust action economy. And D and D, or not D and D, but Baldur's Gate, toward the end of Baldur's Gate two and Throne of Ball, also adds this to some degree with heroic abilities and things like that. So there's like all of these seeds of that around. And 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 I think Rowan uh, is pointing out, like rightfully, that there's a weird moment for Pillars of Eternity in particular. Uh, where they look at that and all the contested space around that, and they say, "All right, well, we're in for it." <laughs> You're like, "We're we're down with trying to solve that problem." And I wonder if maybe that has there's more lineage to it than than I'm giving it, and maybe that Rowan is giving it, where like you can see the feature creep toward that that desire in Neverwinter Nights and in Kotor and and in uh, Dragon Age, right? Um, but it's interesting that they kept that kind of feature creep that is still like hotly, hotly debated in the tabletop community. I say community because it is, it is, it's much broader than, you know, there's no distinct conversation that is happening. I don't think, um, it's hard to point to, uh, but, um, they, they double down on it, which is really, which is really weird to me because in Baldur's Gate one, yeah, there's just, if you're a fighter, you're just good at swinging the sword and that's what you do. But I think I think fourth edition and also these later Infinity RPGs, you know, they both they both mistook. I mean, fourth edition D and D kind of mistook that that you know sometimes you want you have a person in your group who just wants to be the guy that says I swing my sword at the orc, and that that was kind of one of my criticisms of it. Like, not everybody necessarily wants to play basically a crypto wizard with spells quote unquote that are explained by something other than magic and when you have these games that are about you know basically we're going to do D D except you're playing six characters at once uh even though that might have been an unintentional uh place to land when we're talking about Baldur Baldur's gate was never meant to be like primarily this sort of single player experience that the subgenre developed into um, it just becomes, you know, I guess we were, we mentioned tyranny as, or Rowan mentioned tyranny as, as a great example and kind of the direction I would love to see these sort of games go in the future. Um, tyranny added stuff like the, uh, kind of co-op abilities you could have where, you know, these two characters, can work well and do this special thing together. Like, I think that's a really clever way of thinking about the fact that this is a video game and you're managing a large party. And so it's like, okay, I can click this button and that kind of takes care of the action for two characters at once. Like I thought, I, I felt like that was a really clever way to do it because you're taking some of the, the thought process that has to go into picking actions for every single character like every two or three seconds and combining it into like all right you've you've got a you know a two for one um if they don't want to just completely overturn how it works i think mechanics like that are probably an intelligent way to move forward with it um again there's there's also the argument on the table that just all all of these games should be turn-based, which I feel sympathetic to when I play a game like Wasteland 2, where I felt like it was sort of the inverse of the recent Obsidian games, where the story wasn't amazing, 
but I really liked the combat to the point that I was willing to stick with it because it had this really robust turn-based combat system that felt kind of like XCOM. I, I feel like almost every strategy writer really enjoys XCOM-style combat, and uh, I don't know if <laughs> you guys would, would contest that or not, but uh, there's there's definitely a contingent that's that's like... You know, just just do turn based. Just do it turn based. I think when you have something with the complexity of Pillars of Eternity, turn based makes a lot more sense. But oh, yeah. I also, I think that you know, this question I asked, why aren't we getting real time tactics games, is also something that we see the issue with here because, um, like, these games are kind of really messy to control. Uh, it's and the they stretch out. They do that thing where when it becomes harder, it becomes more annoying. So those are those are difficult questions to solve. And I think it's worth looking at the parallels between this and the real-time strategy genre, which was also very much on the rise when the Infinity Engine games were on the rise. And that's part of the Infinity Engine games were taking a lot from them. Like, you could play this as uh, a real-time strategy game, a StarCraft-style thing, where it's like you set your units to go and you occasionally use a special skill if you feel that one is needed but mostly you're just watching and hoping that you have like had the in starcraft it's the economic base where you have more better units than your enemy um and then in in a Baldur's gate it's the uh, itemization you ho- and leveling up you hope that your characters are stronger and have better stuff than your enemies do and you just enjoy the show um and like Okay, so what's what makes real time tactic or real time strategy games uh, effective? What makes what makes StarCraft like a joy to play in a way that these maybe aren't for us? What why why do these things work in one way here and not quite in another way there? And these are kind of open ended questions. I'm not about to answer them. I'm I'm just more rambling. Well, I, I mean, I, can... I think I have one answer to to that. Um, that I'm really glad that you brought that up. I think this is a really great like heuristic for addressing the problem. Um, but because what Baldur's Gate, the the entirety of the the Baldur's Gate trajectory, the Infinity Engine games punish you for having more APM than the game's internal turn system is working at. So if you are clicking items or you are clicking uh, attacks or spells faster than they are registering or faster than they can be sequenced into turns by the game right so if Baldur's gate we can go and turn auto pause on it's going to be pausing at the end of every action step that everyone is taking you can kind of play it in the pseudo turn basedy kind of way um, but if you are clicking items faster than that can go or if you're casting spells or if you are switching uh, items or weapons or things like that, you can fundamentally stun lock yourself out of several turns. Um, and this is something that I very painfully learned uh, as a as a, uh, a child playing Baldur's Gate uh, in the in the early 2000s. Like it is the saddest thing in the world uh, because I was playing Starcraft at the same time. Um, so real-time strategy games, for the most part, I, and you know, uh, especially ones during the '90s and the early 2000s, I think that if you're that combat uh, and especially large group combat kind of fiddles with this. But for the most part, if you are playing StarCraft and you are clicking faster than your opponent, you are gaining some kind of advantage. In Baldur's Gate, if you are playing it like you would play a real-time strategy game, you are 
hurting yourself in a very serious and bad way. Um, and maybe that's part of the problem. Like it is a turn-based game as far as the game's clock internal clock is concerned for the player. It is not experienced necessarily in that way. And that mismeasure between those two things makes for very bad play experiences. Sometimes it, it means that you don't knock that major shield off or you don't, um, I don't know, switch your weapon appropriately, or you don't use your spell before, uh, they get their own breach off. Um, and it makes you die and it makes you have to reload and, and there's no saving in the middle of an encounter. So you got to start all the way over. So it's this, um, uh, cascade effect of bad feeling. If you play it like the game that it seems like it is, uh, which, you know, that doesn't happen in XCOM. That doesn't happen in a much more telegraphed kind of genre. Uh, it, you know, that can't happen in fallout Two. So I think that's yeah, part uh, of it. Uh, as a simple, simple form of this, uh, Real-time strategy games, the RTS genre, does not have a orders while paused. Uh, you, mm -hmm. It's always going at the same speed, and the entire game is therefore designed around making that speed something that's fun for you to play. Whereas, because Baldur's Gate, because Dragon Age, because Pillars of Eternity are all these messiah games that are supposed to be the RPGs for everybody, they have all these different pause settings. And I don't know, I don't edit the pause settings in these. I just want to, like, get it over with. I don't pause very much. I should turn it on when my guys see traps, because they always see them and then walk right into them. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's definitely a thing that I should do. But, like, hey, look, cameras... it's some spikes! Oh, yeah, oh, no, too late, yeah. Yep, yeah. definitely spikes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you should, you should do, just, like, load up Baldur's Gate 2 and turn all the pause settings on. And it's bizarre. I mean, yeah. it's unplayable. Uh, or I mean, yeah. I, I know that people do play it that way, but I find it it robs any possible enjoyment from the game. But right, like there is this affordance built into that thing, but it so clearly is not meant to be experienced that way. Yeah, um, and this this goes to sort of one of my uh, kind of philosophies of strategy games, and it can be applied to RPGs as well, which is that when you have a game that's doing multiple things at once, it needs to really know what the thing that it's doing is its focus. So in XCOM, you have two different things. You have a strategic layer and a tactical layer, but the tactical layer is the focus. Uh, you can lose on the strategic layer, but... If you're good at the tactical layer, you're probably going to be okay, even if you're average or barely competent at the strategic layer. Like these are, uh, and when it kind of falls apart is when that that breaks down. Um, and so, a lot of these uh, Infinity Engine style games are trying to do two things at once. They're trying to be this grand epic story. They're trying to be this. You decide all the things that you're doing. Uh, you're managing your party members and how they relate to you and how they relate to each other even. Uh, and then there's also a combat thing. And it's really hard for them to decide which one of these is the focus. And when that happens, when there's this divide, I think that games kind of break down a little. Um, and this is actually why, surprisingly, despite my general distaste for Infinity Engine-style games... I played and enjoyed Icewind Dale, which is the one that is just combat. Like, there's yeah. a little bit of a story, but, like, okay, why does this happen? Because this is the only thing I care about. This this combat is not getting in the way of a story that I care much more about. 
this combat is not get, getting in the way of characters that I want to meet and talk to. It's not getting in the way of exploration. It's just, here's the thing that's happening. You've rolled your party. There's no NPCs. Uh, go nuts. And that actually works for me, which is, I find, a, a always interesting corollary. Like, I, yeah. I also, it's the fishing minigame thing. I always say ban fishing minigames. But <laughs> I like radical fishing. Like, that's a great game. Uh because fishing is always a terrible part of usually JRPGs. Uh, but when it's on its own, sure, that can be fun. Um, but yeah, wait, it's, the, it's the fishing minigames of RPG combat. Yeah, I've, I've referred to it as the Icewind Dale paradox in the past. That like it's, it's the least fun part of all of these other Infinity games. And then for some reason in, in Icewind Dale, like, I don't know, they might have put more thought into the encounter design possibly because of you know they didn't have other stuff to focus on um but the other question i wanted to definitely ask you guys is do you feel like automation is a good solution ultimately to solving a lot of these problems i mean pillars two has definitely improved a lot over pillars one in terms of what how much stuff you can script how in-depth you can get with the scripting. Um, this has actually come up with other genres we've talked about in the past, you know, Hearts of Iron 3 versus Hearts of Iron 4 and the philosophy of to what degree is teaching the game to play the game for you uh, an, an adequate solution to a very, you know, complicated combat system that the player can't necessarily always be paying attention to. I'd say it's a benefit. Like Pillars 2, I definitely see advantages in some of the decisions they made. They have fewer per rest uh, um, skills that are like the super skills that will win a combat, but you don't know if you actually want to use them because you want to save your rests. That's not as much of an issue in Pillars 2 for several reasons. Um, also, five characters instead of six is helpful. Uh, but the game that I think think about when you say that is your beloved Dragon Age Origins. Um, mm -hmm. Which... I loved, I absolutely loved the party scripting system in Dragon Age right. Origins. For some reason I had no problem like spending 20 minutes after every battle fine-tuning and it might be that I only had three people to worry about. Honestly, that was probably a big part of it. Versus four in, in Pillars 2 or five in Pillars 1. Uh, the... The interesting thing um, that I found with that in Dragon Age Origins was that I hated it in Final Fantasy XII. And it's not that different of a system. But for whatever reason, in Dragon Age Origins, I thought that the way that they invested you in it by, like, you start with only two of them with your level one characters, uh, and you, like, just say, Alistair, find somebody and hit, it, hit them with your shield, and then keep doing that. Um, and then eventually you have like these 10 or 12 if-then statements where it's like, if the mage is getting attacked, disengage, go knock the, their attacker over, and if you're below 50% health, don't do that, and all the, this interesting stuff where it, it guides you into the game slowly. And, you know, I played and liked Dragon Age Origins quite a bit. I feel that, like, it's, it's pretty grindy these days. It has not aged exceptionally well in that respect. But I expected to hate it because it was like, this is Final Fantasy XII plus Baldur's Gate combat. And it's like, those are my two least favorite things in the world, but I like this game. How did this happen? 
And I think it's because they got you into the automation in uh, a way that had you feel like you had control over it. Like, um, the original Baldur's Gate, like, I, I was in an RPG fan community at the time that was super invested in it and there were programmers that who went into the java i think it was java uh and were like programming the various party ai members so that you know they would do the right things and not be super annoying uh but i was never at that level uh i was at the level where i made my character uh wave files that were all tick quotes uh so you know <laughs> when you walk into a city you'd say roof pig most unexpected <laughs> but uh that, that was my level of customization. But anyway, the Dragon Age had a very simple interface that got complex enough to do most of what it needed to over time. And that level of automation worked, I feel. Yeah, it's it's really like, it's feeling like you understand why you lost and what to do. Like, I think about Dragon Age Origins, the hardest fight in that game, in my opinion, is Gax Kang, which is like this super obscure side quest that... You have to go do all this random stuff to even get to the end of it, and it's way out of the way, and it's not plot essential at all. But you end up fighting this lich in, like, this hut in the middle of Denerim. And it's, like, it's really, really challenging, but, like, I felt like every time I went up against him, I understood specifically where the fight went sideways and how I could either, myself controlling my warden, do something different or how I could go in and change the scripting in order to make it go more smoothly the next time. Whereas, like, the hardest fights in Pillars 1 were, like, the one against that you you have to oust whatever Baron from his castle at one point. And I'm like, there's so much going on here that all I really know is that I lost. And I... I would need to go through like a frame by frame replay of this to really know why and what I could do better next time. And I think that's what definitely separates those two games for me. Got to read that combat log. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I think this is probably not an opinion that's going to be uh, uh, super popular with the three moves ahead crowd. Um, but but that's my uh, my benefit is is uh, coming on as as a guest. Uh, I want automation, but not with customization. Um, I think I would be most happy with a Pillars of Eternity or Infinity Engine style game that made very strong choices. I mean, they're already making very strong choices about characters, right? I mean, that is the punch of a Pillars of Eternity game at this point is that, I mean, they're literally funding it partially off the back of stretch goals with more robust characters that are full, fully voiced and whose uh, stories stretch throughout the world and interact with each other. And Pillars of Eternity 2, I think, does that better than any other game in the genre. Um, I, I feel very, very confident about that. I mean, uh, it it's doing very interesting things with that narrative layer and, and the explora exploration mechanics. Um, but... That doesn't extend to the combat, right? Because we want to be able to, you know, fiddle with every little part, all these different pieces that you're talking about. Of if the mage is being attacked or if I'm at less than 50% health, then do all of these different things. I think I would be most happy in a world where we don't go to just straight up D&D 5th edition action economy tactical style, which I would, I think, probably prefer. I'd probably prefer the move to turn-based. But if that doesn't happen, then I would like more robust choices about how ai works for the npcs the the non-player uh, created characters and then i would like them to 
uh, operate, I would like their combat to operate in the same way as their narrative does, where they have their own sets of uh, fiddly uh, desires, and they pursue those, and they might not be doing the things that I want them to do. I mean, I some of my most fond narrative moments in video games are in Fallout 1 and 2, where your NPCs, as often as they would do what you wanted them to, would just do whatever the hell they wanted. And at the (laughs) time, I just thought, like, oh, oh, I they are doing what they want and like now i know that that is not that is not the case right it's not they're not making any actionable thing it's basically like a morale check for when they do those things or you know run away or whatever but i would prefer automation that is ai based and that is wholly removed from the ability of the player to do anything about it i think that would be the most fulfilling move in game design for me as far as baldur's gate style combat goes i think that would also be like an utter nightmare uh from a million different ways it would be poorly received it would be very difficult to implement i i understand on a technical level all the reasons why that is not happening and from a production level and from a reception level like i get it but that is what i would want that that's i i would love to see the combat shift to a uh toward the world rather than the player um in the way that all of the other parts of the design have shifted toward the world and putting more money and time into all those different aspects of that world but rowan how do we fix infinity engine combat so uh cameron's idea actually made me think of i i avoided talking about ultima 7 at the start of this (laughs) but now it's time for ultima 7 um so if you want a single game that sort of encapsulates the the beginning of the transfer um, to this kind of single character with party AI controlled things with like huge seamless worlds with real-time combat instead of turn-based combat. Ultima 7 is that game. It's in 1992. It's way before all these other things. It's so it's incredibly ahead of its time. Combat is extremely deprioritized compared to the previous kind of all you do is guide your character through a dungeon. And that's it for you know tons of RPGs from the 80s and early 90s. Uh, Ultima 7, combat is kind of a side a sideshow. Like you can lose by a combat, um, but it's it's just sort of there. And what it is, it's a real-time thing where you control your avatar and your party members run off and do whatever they feel like doing once combat starts and you just hope that they didn't run into a poison swamp and die when they were doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, like, a lot of RPGs afterwards are kind of trying to solve the Ultima 7 problem of okay this is real-time combat we like that we want this fast-paced combat but we want to actually make it meaningful and maybe it doesn't actually get to be meaningful like maybe that speed and complexity are just you know at the opposite ends of one another um and that's okay but uh another thing i was thinking you know when i say that Baldur's gate is running in parallel with uh the real-time strategy games of that era, well, real-time strategy games have kind of fallen off. What's replaced them? The MOBA has. And what does the MOBA do that's different from uh, your real-time strategy games? Like, you're controlling one character who has three or four skills that are um, time-centered and not um, rest-centered or some abstraction. Uh, 
So it's like you cast this spell, you can't cast it again for eight more seconds, and that's it. That's always going to be that way. Um, so the decision fatigue goes way down compared to here is my 50-unit attack in StarCraft that has 10 different styles of units, some of whom have special skills that I'm going to really need to use if I'm going to beat my enemy who has an equivalently sized army. So the decision fatigue goes down, and the important things are the ones that come up. And this is also what XCOM the new XCOM did compared to the older XCOM. It said, you know, instead of having 90 action points and, you know, 50 different things that you could do with those action points of various degrees, there are two things you can do. Or there are, you know, and then you add some skills. There are six things you can do. And each of those choices becomes interesting. So if you were to take, like, the MOBA-style design, or the XCOM style design, you would have characters who only have a few skills. Those skills are parceled out by uh, things that are not simply, you know, here are six spells you can cast. There's there's more to it than that. Um, and then I realized that you would have a game that looks exactly like Dragon Age 2. <laughs> and that's it. I mean, yeah. I, I What's really interesting, uh, uh, why I... I think that Pillars of Eternity 2 is a game that I want to wait six months and go back to and really kind of languidly make my way through because there are weird moments in that game and I guess in Pillars of Eternity 1 where that what you're describing is kind of part of the flow of things like it's still keeping the the Vancean magic like you get x number of spells per day but then it makes it a little bit more generic like everyone's kind of a sorcerer in in uh in pillars of eternity too but then there's also the stuff like uh all the fighter abilities right like you hit and then there's a little timer that goes down and you can use it again in like two minutes so if you can i don't know switch to a defensive stance and maybe take a few hits and then you'll have your knockdown available to you but then it keeps all the clunky parts right like that's a simplifying maneuver and yet, we've made a choice to keep all of the parts that are not simplifying maneuvers alongside it. So I, I, I really like the, the, the way you put it about the kind of move from RDS to, to MOBA, because what has happened within Pillars of Eternity 2 is that they've moved from Baldur's Gate, but then they didn't forget Baldur's Gate. Like, yeah. like they, they have kept every bit of... Uh, there are a lot of vestigial limbs in the, the evolution, I guess I should say. Uh, vestigial pieces that maybe could just be dropped out. Like, I, I think that would be fine. That'd be okay. How about you, TJ? Well, I actually, I think, I think uh, Rowan, you're very much on the, the track that I would go on where I would really like it if every party member behaved more like a MOBA hero or more like an RTS unit. Because, I mean, the the reason we're talking about this on Three Moves Ahead, this genre is kind of it's sort of a pseudo RTS in a way, like especially in, in a game like pillars one, where you might be controlling seven, eight, you know, units on the screen at one time. If you include like pets and summons and stuff like that. Um, I was not as big a fan of dragon age two as you, because I, I do kind of like that tactical element of like having my shield wall and, you know, you shall not pass. I do like I, I do like being able to kind of control the uh, positioning of things on the battlefield a little more than that, where it felt like Dragon Age Two. A lot of battles were just more of a horde mode, which I I didn't like as much. Um, it's about yeah. time and not space, right? And I really and like it, that. 
you've explained this to me, and I th- I think I do need to go back and play Dragon Age two with that in mind and be like, okay, maybe maybe it wasn't as terrible as uh as I, I initially thought because I wanted Dragon Age Origins two and didn't get that at the time. But um yeah, any any final thoughts on just the Infinity Engine games, the Infinity inspired games in general, how they tie into the idea of strategy and tactics in any unique ways, wishes, hopes, dreams, uh, nightmares. I mean, Josh Sawyer uh, coming into the release of Pillars of Eternity Two was was quoted. Uh, I think it was during a like a live talk or maybe a conversation, but it, it, the quote went around that um, fans of this genre. Uh, are unwilling to change that's not the exact quote but it's the gist they have a a, a certain desire for certain things and if they were willing to break from that a bit then maybe the the game uh, the genre could move forward um and so that that says to me that there are people internal to the company and i'm sure this has been happening you know since the first pillars of eternity came out and probably during the pre-production for that as well but there are people who are deeply aware of of how much these games smash into the uh the the edges of what they're meant to be doing or what they can do and i i mean i think i would be okay i would to some degree i would love what happened before to happen again which is that Pillars of Eternity 1, very successful. Pillars of Eternity 2, very successful. Um, I would love for the people who worked on that to then go do something else that is in an adjacent genre. Because I would love to play... I I, I think, you know, despite my love for Baldur's Gate, despite my love for Infinity Engine, I kind of just want to play the next Neverwinter Nights or the next KOTOR, right? Like, the thing that took all of the lessons that they learned making those games and then spun it into something directly to the side of it. Um, because I think that that lets you solve a lot of the issues that we're talking about here, like the very specific um, top top down design problems that are perhaps unsolvable. Because it's been twenty years, so we haven't haven't gotten close. It doesn't feel like so. So that's that's I, my hope. I've also heard Josh Sawyer talk about how like people want a turn based version of this. That he thought that like that would be theoretically possible and maybe there would be difficulty there. But there's there's pressure coming for fans to do it that way too. So I don't I don't know what the numbers might be. Um but yeah, it's it's a weird situation where you have these games that are designed specifically to be throwbacks. Uh people gave them money to be a throwback. And it's like, what is the most important aspect of being the throwback? Like I talked about the itemization in Pillars of Eternity is extremely different from D&D. And that's interesting. That's cool. I would love that, especially in a turn-based game where I could take the time to figure out exactly what I wanted to do. Uh, But they're obviously willing to change that kind of thing. And they have this plot that is not a simple good versus evil kind of thing. It's this weird theological, what is the nature of godhood uh, level that uh, like Torment might get to, uh, the original Planescape Torment. But speaking of Torment, like if you look at the Kickstarted game there, uh, which was, I believe, reasonably successful, they just said, screw the Infinity Engine combat, we're going turn-based, and we're also barely having any combat whatsoever. And also the combat is half-talking most of the time. So, like, they were able to say, you know, the aspect of this game that people loved the most was the words, uh, and we don't want them to worry about the fighting too much. And I thought that worked really well uh, most of the time. 
but like Wasteland was uh supposed to be like a pseudo sequel to both Fallout and uh the original Wasteland. Um the original Wasteland was a party-based menu-based combat. The original Fallout was a single character-based thing where you would occasionally have NPCs who would fire the submachine guns way 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 too much, Ian. Uh <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. Good old Ian. But Wasteland 2 has a multi-character tactical combat similar to XCOM, as TJ talked about, which doesn't fit those things. Mm -hmm. And it felt like it was perfectly fine as a spiritual successor. It says, here's where games are now. People are cool with having, you know, complex four-character combat versus menu-based combat or versus single-character-based combat. Um and the Shadow Run games did similar kinds of things, and it, it worked well. Like so, that th- those doors can be opened, and I don't necessarily know that, uh, like it would be. Okay, let's rephrase that. Um, <laughs> I personally might love it if the Infinity Engine was burned and scourged from the face of the Earth, but I recognize there are people who aren't, and I wouldn't want these kinds of games to disappear entirely because of that. However, I would like companies like Obsidian. Um, to be able to e- experiment, do their narrative experiments in genres or subgenres that were not necessarily this one, uh, because I think they're doing a lot of the most interesting things with narratives in RPGs. Oh yeah, I mean, I in my review of Pillars of Eternity too, I it's very clear to me. I would much I like Pillars of Eternity Eternity too. Fine, it is a better visual novel than it is anything else. And if I could consume it in that way without any of the the weirdness of pseudo infinity engine in it, I would I would have enjoyed it infinitely more. Ha 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 ha. Right? Like I it, like I think you're 100 percent right. Like I I want them to be telling these kinds of stories and doing this kind of work, like the the classic Obsidian kind of stuff, in a framework that a is not a South Park game because I have zero interest, even a little <laughs> bit of interest in that. Um and 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 be in in something other than a throwback container. Um, I mean, you know, I'm I'm within the Baldur's Gate fan community. Uh, there are a lot of people like me who who appreciate it for the narrative things it was doing and some of the D and D adaptive things it was doing and its level design. That's something that's not really talked about enough, I don't think, with with D and D. And like you were saying earlier, Rowan, it's kind of focus on exploration, that kind of stuff, random events in the wild. Um, all those things, but I, I, you're exactly right. There are people who, you know, you get into the fan community, and you realize they've just been doing math for 20 years. Um, <laughs> and I don't mean that, you know, I'm not saying that as a negative, like I'm glad that they enjoy the game, but straight up, I mean, it's just people who are crunching spreadsheets of information to figure out exactly what the right multi-class is for getting through Baldur's Gate 2 without ever being hit, right? Like that's the level that this game is at. And I, I just, I don't know if that's a way to grow an audience, is by catering to that particular crowd. And I think that oh, the yeah. Obsidian thing could go much bigger than that. That's sort of that, that two, two aspect of the game thing that I was talking about earlier, because like I knew people who played Wizardry 7 like that. Mm-hmm. But Wizardry 7 was an extremely crunchy game. That was, that, there, was, there was a narrative, but this was not about making choices. It was not really about exploration. It was about developing your party in the coolest way you possibly can. So these people would get bored, and they would try to play this game. It's supposed to be a six-character game with a single ninja, and they would do well at it. Uh, and like 
that makes sense to me in that game. But in Baldur's Gate, like, there's also this story and world and, you know, all these Infinity Engine games that are trying to be the RPG messiah. And, like, depending on what aspect of the game you prefer, like, why not split those two things up? I mean, even if yeah. you're doing... Even if you're doing the math, like that math becomes more interesting and fun to do in turn-based games, in my opinion. Um, so, um, I, yeah, there's a lot of different things that can be done, I think. The other thing I, I wanted to say is I, f- I feel like number of characters could be a solution in and of itself. I've talked about, you know, Origins worked better than Pillars 1 because it's four characters versus six. We didn't get a chance to talk much about KOTOR specifically in this this episode, but I feel like... With three characters, I never really felt decision fatigue. Like, that was almost like a sweet spot. Is, you know, you can keep all the complexity per character you have now if it's three, maybe four at most characters. And to tie into what you guys have been saying, like, that doesn't mean we can't have more party members, but maybe we have a Xander in the group who, like, he's not involved in combat at all. Maybe we have one person who's just a really good thief but they're going to go, you know, hide behind a rock when, you know, shit goes down because that's just the type of character they are narratively. Like, I think breaking away from the idea that everybody has to be narratively useful and combat useful that certain, you know, tabletop RPGs like Fate have explored uh, could be a really good way to tackle it as well. Yeah. Uh, One aspect of RPGs that since Baldur's Gate has been a source of frustration to me is this idea that you have X number of members of your party and then you have like a headquarters that has everyone else there. Like when was, when was the last RPG where you actually had the number of characters in the game as the number of characters in your party? Uh, And what are the advantages of that? Because I think there's a huge advantages to that. Like you could do more stuff like you're talking about And this. I don't know that this necessarily helps the tactical engine that much. This is just a constant frustration. I don't, I don't want to leave my characters behind all the time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, I think we've covered, uh, covered the topic pretty well. Uh, So I think we'll go ahead and say that three moves ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network and produced by Michael Hermes. Uh, you can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Also, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. Uh, so head on over if you would like to support the show at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, we'll be back very soon with more strategy and tactics to discuss. Um, But for now, uh, for Rowan Kaiser and Cameron Kunzelman, I am TJ Hafer, and we will see you guys uh, on the on the campaign map. I don't know. (laughs) Didn't write write an outro and I ad libbed it very poorly. Mm -hmm. So we'll see you on the high seas. There we go. Pillars Two reference pulling it in.